when we talk about the practice of Dhamma, we're talking about training the heart, the spiritual heart, that which knows, quality of knowing. And our teachers all point out that the heart starts to change and is changed by the arising of the factors of the path, the Eightfold Noble Path, coming together, unifying, arising in the heart, supporting each other. So through from Samaditi through to Samati or Sila Samati Panya. These factors have to arise, come up together, are developed together, supporting each other. And it's not that one is any more important than the other in the sense that they all have to be there together in the heart. So on paper, although we start with samaditi through to samasamati, or if you talk about sila, samadhi, panya, it's not that the panya is the only factor or the dominant factor. We need the sila, the samadhi as well. Or that sila is there, no panya, no samadhi yet. These three factors, these qualities all arise, supporting each other. They're like parts of a whole or a, a circle, different segments of a circle that all fit together to make the whole circle. segments are there, unified, supporting each other in the heart, then it gives rise to samanyana dasana, right, vision, and vimuti, liberation, and ultimately nibbana, the experience of nibbana. So it's a very complete training that we undergo following the Buddha's path as bhikkhus, training in Dhamma and Vinaya, in Sila Samadhi Panya. And all the segments have to be developed, so we can't ignore any aspect of the practice. And we have to give ourselves time in the practice to work through our own karma and obstacles because we're all coming from the beginning point of avicca, ignorance, ignorance of the path, ignorance of Four Noble Truths and so on. We have to 
have give ourselves time, have the patience and the time to develop these different segments of the whole. Over the years, observing myself and other practitioners, you can see that obviously the refined aspects of samadhi and insight are, as they say, refined. They take time, they take effort and training to develop. In practical terms, the sealer that we keep is something that we all have to keep and perhaps is what we are working with initially in the practice and continuously it's affecting us as we keep the sila of a bhikkhu. And it's where you might see more obvious results over time because samadhi and insight are very refined, subtle things. Sometimes hard to judge how they're affecting the mind of oneself or others. But sila, one can see quite clearly, starts to affect in a very powerfully good way, wholesome way. Has a very powerful effect on the minds and hearts of individuals over time. And you can see genuine and very obvious changes coming about in individuals characters, the way they think, the way they speak, the way they act over time that is for their benefit and for the benefit of others. One can see the results of keeping sila over time which helps to arouse confidence, conviction in the worth, the value of the practice and also obviously helps to support the arising of the more refined and subtle aspects of samadhi and panya. So it is vital for us to keep reaffirming our willingness to train in the sila of the Vinaya. Keep at it stick with it until it becomes the norm. Because obviously as lay people before we come into the monastery it's not necessarily the norm for us to keep a refined sealer. But as bhikkhus it's our obligation, responsibility as being bhikkhus to keep the Vinaya. And it's what will support the arising of all these other dhammas as well. The Buddha said in different places that to practice we have to begin with <clears throat> quality of respect, the respect for the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, respect for Dhamma Vinaya. And we have to have a sense of shame. We can see how the bhikkhu training the Vinaya brings up those qualities, uh, requires the qualities and also 
cements them, make them very firm in our heart. Many, many rules we keep and ways of practice are bringing out the quality of respect and respect for the teacher, for elders, respect for other monks, even junior monks, novices, anagarikas, lay people, even animals. We learn to respect life. And we learn to respect the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the Buddha as the founder of our way of training, the enlightened Buddha, and also the qualities of the Buddha, and even our own potential for enlightenment that lies within ourselves, a self-respect. A respect for the Dhamma, the truth, and the vehicle by which we can realize freedom from suffering. Respect for Sangha, those who have practiced well, directly, with integrity, with insight, those qualities. Many of our rules are encouraging this sense of respect as a very valuable Dhamma, respect for that which is worthy of respect, not for things that are irrelevant to the practice, distracting, worthless, immoral, coming from ignorance or whatever. One is respecting that which is worthy of respect and developing that quality. And sense of shame and awareness of the wholesome, the unwholesome, and shying away from the unwholesome. An acceptance that one does have karma, one has the tendencies towards unwholesome ways of body, speech and mind, but shying away from it with a sense of shame, shame towards others and their behaviour that's unwholesome, shame towards oneself, one's unwholesome behaviour is a basic starting point for the training. Without shame one cannot train, one won't listen to anyone, one won't, won't see the value of restraining one's unwholesome tendencies. So much of our training is bringing up these qualities and relies on these qualities. And sometimes in the beginning of training we think, oh, there's a lot of rules to learn, a lot of ways of practice, a lot of monastic form and etiquette to keep. But So we have to keep reminding ourselves of the value of it, that it is changing us. And over time we should be able to see that change, see the uh, rough edges being smoothened off like the river pebbles that become smooth and round. And because the kilesas, the things that Awichar feeds, they also have their own amazing variation of detail that can come up in so many different ways, so much variety to uh, further delude us, cause us suffering and trouble and other people trouble. If you think there's enough, there's plenty of rules and ways of practice to learn, plenty of core what to learn, just think of the defilements in all their variations, there's even more of them to deal with. And the defilements don't rest, they don't just take a back seat, they're constantly trying to uh, 
work their way into our minds and hearts and into our behavior. They have been in the past and they'll continue to do that if we give up our guard or we're careless. So just one obvious reflection is that over time it doesn't just mean that as we stay longer in the robes that our chalices will necessarily just sort of fade away. We have to keep vigilant, diligent, uh, heedful our pamada through our practice, through the many years of our practice. You can be in the robes five years and feel you know what you have to do now, you're no longer a nawika. But the kalesas can come up and they can overwhelm one after five years of practice. Or ten years of practice, you think I'm a terror now. The kalesas can also overwhelm us when we're ten years, or twenty years, or thirty years. They don't choose, they're conditioned things and they're fed by ignorance and ignorance is like a black hole, it's a very powerful force that's deluding that we don't see. Things that we don't see can come up at any time very easily. So we don't set aside the sila, say the bhikkhu training, the vinaya, just after a few years we think we know it all and can set it aside and rest easy. We have to keep up the practice. We have to be vigilant. Even the small rules, the little things, are perhaps even more important because they're the first area we do tend to sort of let up, let go little aspects of our practice to do with our sila, the way we gain our requisites, the respect for other bhikkhus, for senior monks, restraint in our speech, our actions towards the opposite sex, restraint towards the world around us, and so on. It's very easy for one could think, ah, now I know the practice and sit back and let things slip. But these smaller rules which help to guide us in these these areas are the very area we have to be careful and vigilant. Ajahn Man used to say it's very difficult and rare that, say, a log will come up and poke your eye out. The log is a big thing but very easy for sawdust to get into your eye and blur your vision and even blind you. It's very easy for us to let small things slip in the practice as time goes on because we think they're small things and unimportant. But the harm that's done is that little by little the sealer can slip, even right view can slip, we get according to unwholesome ways, uh, maybe disrespectful or careless in our speech, our actions, or un- lack of shame in our actions, speech. And there's this aspect of the way a bhikkhu say can go backwards is that one thing leads to another, a small thing leads on to a bigger thing. So of course very rare that bhikkhus commit serious grave offences, Parajika, Sankagadisesis. They do, but it's rare. 
but more common is small minor rules, drop them, give them up, maybe through stubbornness or carelessness or just sort of blindness. But then the small rule you drop and then of course out of habit a small rule grows into a bigger rule and gradually you could move towards these bigger, more grave offences by dropping smaller rules first, giving up other aspects of the practice first. On the other hand, if we do keep up our training in the Korwat, the Vinaya, the Sila, over time, the results produce something very beautiful. Kalyana Dhamma, that which is beautiful in the Dhamma, meaning these rough edges are rounded off. The more stubborn, proud, arrogant ways of behaving disrespectful ways, careless, greedy, indulgent ways, the angry ways of behavior do get eroded away. And one can see over the years bhikkhus that keep the Vinaya and follow the Korwat, they change irrevocably for the good. Their heart changes. The sense of shame becomes established as just normal. Sense of respect for life, for others, for the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, for senior monks, and so on, becomes established. This is something all of us can quite reasonably aspire to and hope for. And of course, it's the platform for the refinement of samadhi and insight, it comes with this. You see Lumpur Cha's wisdom in establishing this sort of monastic way of training. It works from A to Z, from the beginning, the small things, the beginnings of the training as an Anagarika, as a novice, Anawaka Bhikkhu, Majjhima Bhikkhu, Tera, Mahatera, through to enlightenment, A to Z, it works. He himself practiced in this way out of his compassion he passed it on to us his bones have now become relics you can go and observe them pay respects to them, meditate on them the wisdom of his teachings you know, is encompassed in his books that still go all around the world still enlightening people just reading his books, the wisdom and insight is so profound the bones are relics, the words of his Dhamma are still profound and it's a system that has been proven to work. So we have this way of training, we come into the monastery, we, we learn from day one to give up our coarser sense of self. And keeping sila means you're giving up self, you're practicing not self as it were, by giving up to the Dhamma Vinaya, the way of training. So we give up preferences, learn to be, keep our mind in the middle, just practicing Indriya Sangwara, say, another part of our sila, which leads on in, into samadhi. Just learning to be uh, at peace with conditions. So we get things we like or we don't. Things happen that we don't like or they don't. We are at peace, we keep our mind in the middle, not liking, not disliking, letting go of those preferences, <clears throat> letting go of our views and opinions on Dhamma, so we 
follow the routine whether we like the routine or we don't like routine we just accept what routine is on offer what's happening and the people around us we like them we don't like them we agree with them we don't we just accept they're the way they are and we're learning to let go of our preferences and you know it's a very direct practice of insight meditation and each dukkha anatta letting go of preferences opinions are anicca dukkha anya anatta and when we see that we can drop them opinions about ourselves, about other people the world the dhamma the way of practice all of that from day one just keeping the core what and the sila already we're practicing insight meditation if we understand the point as bhikkhus we practice training we don't always have, we're not always able to do exactly what we want we have to give that up give up that sense of self maybe our pride or conceit our views and just do what is the right thing according to Dhamma Vinaya many many of the, these rules and ways of practice are requiring that but it's a value because it's rounding off these sharp edges we learn to you know when you practice uh, chariyawata with the teacher or with terrors you're not choosing out of preference i like this one i don't like that one you're not following your views and opinions you're just doing what is the correct thing according to dhamma vinaya so some terrors you like some you don't some you agree with some you don't you just do what is the correct thing give up the sense of self like the routine you just follow the routine if we didn't do this if everyone just followed their opinions well, obviously the routine wouldn't be workable the acharya what wouldn't be workable we'd all break off into little groups and factions and the harmony of the sangha would just sort of fall apart dissolve and the overall atmosphere for meditation would be much much inferior and when we give up to the dhamma vinaya to the core what to the training even though it's hard keeping that sila rounding off the edges of our opinions and views and core sense of self this is what provides a peaceful backdrop for ourselves and everyone else in the monastery this is what makes a peaceful monastery when people give up to dhamma vinaya and it changes us changes our heart over time we learn to let go of our first of all our strong preferences our strong likes our strong dislikes we let go of them because they clutter up life they get in the way and cause us suffering if we still cling on to them and then we work on the more subtle ones inside that maybe nobody else knows about or can even see or tell because they're so subtle but we still have to work on them if we want a peaceful mind working on them with sila samadhi panya using mindfulness to recognize our own states of mind recognize our own kilesas as they arise and adjust to them not indulge them but just know them let them go restrain the mind that wants to indulge them and let them go 
This is the way sila runs into samadhi through the mindfulness of practice with all this kawat, all the detailed kawat and sila that we keep in the vinaya. Trains the mind in very good mindfulness, attentiveness to the present moment, what we're doing, where we're going, the reason behind the different things we do. We get to know that. So we train in sati, sampajanya. And the result of letting go of all these preferences and that is the mind becomes very even, very balanced and able to reason things through, able to investigate dhamma and truth very easily because it's in a stable state where wise reflection, reasoned reflection is able to work. We're not caught into big emotional swings of sort of liking, disliking, excitement, depression and all of that which characteristic is characteristic of the lay life perhaps obviously that takes time we have to rely on some endurance and patience as we work to get to that point but once we do experience that more we're letting go of our preferences for people for places for the routine for the weather the food all the different things in life as you're dropping those preferences then the mind can easily settle down into samadhi. Then maybe it's more subtle things just like how much energy your body has, how weak you are, your health and all of that. And even that you might start to adjust. If you value the practice of meditation where you want to keep your body going healthy as a vehicle for that meditation. So you adjust your diet, your exercise how you sit, how you walk to support that. And with this, with the seal and the samadhi, then there's a chance for insight to arise as the mind becomes more suitable for investigating the Dhamma. As we let go of these coarser preferences through the practice, it frees up the mind, the, the intelligence of the mind, the creative aspect of the mind, the attentiveness of the mind, the ability to put attention on something and investigate it. It's all freed up. The words they use in Pali, you know, like the, wor- the words um, like malleable, workable. The mind becomes gentle, workable, malleable, like soft clay that you can knead and push into shapes and make pots and things. As we practice sila samadhi, it becomes more refined and the mind calms down. Well, then it's refined enough to investigate dhamma and direct the intention to contemplating what's arising. As we have sense contact to see the reactions the kilesas that arise as we see, hear, taste, smell, touch, and as ideas arise in the mind itself. We have enough workability and malleability of mind to see cessation, to see you know, moments where moods pass away, thoughts pass away, to see the changes of the body, the changes of the posture, you'll be totally focused on the body and see every posture how we change from one posture to the next notice the different sensations in this body the aches, the pains, the itches the coolness, the heat the hunger the fullness, the thirst the quenched thirst 
deepen our insight in this way to investigate every perception that arises to see how believable it really is how easily we get deluded you know, when we're not peaceful, we don't have very good sila and very good samadhi yet. Well, we tend to just be pushed around just by different memories, perceptions. Like say you hear some gossip about somebody, could be a monk or lay person. Just a few words describing that person and see how your mind is just affected by that. Just a few words of a rumor, say that person is say their meditation is very good they have great samadhi or they have achieved a stage of enlightenment you hear that rumor so if you meet that person straight away your mind is going to be reacting in one way or you hear some words some person is terrible person keep doing terrible things your mind is affected in a totally different way these might be just a few words that have given you a perception about a person. Very superficial perception, but if there's no investigation, no real mindfulness, all that will affect colour the way you look at that person. And if you're not aware of that, it might just be fixed in your way of looking at them. Or it could be a situation, an event, a situation, or an issue, or an idea, a viewpoint. As the mind calms down, it gives us the ability to actually investigate wisely and look at the way we attach to things, the way we view ourselves, others, the world, the way these kalesas form in the mind, the way we have our, our preferences actually form. No longer just, say, restraining them with mindfulness, but actually looking how preferences form over time, liking and disliking what we like we tend to think of is good and right for us what is we dislike is bad and wrong for us but to actually see that process to see how attachment forms over preferences arising many times over time becomes fixed attachments in the mind attachment to this body and these are my eyes my ears my nose my tongue my body that feels and then my mind that experiences ideas and memories. Sense of me and mine, how it forms. Again, this sort of perception of self. Grasping all the time. And then the suffering that comes from that. You keep grasping that. Waitana, say, the Waitana Kanda. You keep grasping at it without mindfulness, without investigating it then you keep taking it as a me, a mine, and you keep reacting to it. It will affect you, maybe the whole day, your your weight in a candor is affecting you. Generally, grasping pleasure and seeking pleasure and trying to hold on to pleasure, and always trying to get rid of pain, moving away from it, trying to block it, stop it. It affects how we relate to the world, doesn't it? Anything we think might be a little bit painful, discomfort, we tend to avoid that, not want it, get away from it. Anything we think will bring us some pleasure, we go for it. Whether it's the material world or just subtle things inside the mind, like 
we go for the pleasure that comes with a peaceful state of mind. We want that, we seek that. When we don't get it, then we might go to depression or misery and feel miserable because we haven't got it. Say, I can't meditate, I'm hopeless meditator and so on. It's actually just the functioning of the weight in a candor and then reacting to it. As the mind settles down then we keep the core what we practice more mindfulness and experience more calmness, evenness of mind. It allows us to look more closely at our experience. It's a, the Buddha compared it to a person awakening from sleep or a awakening out of an intoxicated state. And you can see insight is like that. It's the aha moment when you see something clearer than before like waking up out of sleep out of avichar turning the light bulb on the brightening of wisdom insight in the mind it could be even in you know extreme dukkha sometimes a dukkha vaitana or, or unpleasant situations dhammanasa vaitana Painful memories, painful thoughts, painful feelings, physical feelings. And dukkha is the source of much insight. We tend to shrink away from dukkha with our mind. We don't like it, we react to it. But when we use it with, to develop insight, it's a noble truth to be recognized, understood for what it is. Dukkha is dukkha. You know, if you can do that, even sometimes in extreme dukkha, say sitting meditation, and you can wake up by establishing mindfulness and insight into the nature dukkha anatta, or some dukkha waitana as you're sitting, rather than giving into it and stopping the sitting or seeking distraction or getting flustered in some way, but actually facing up to it, looking at, seeing it as dukkha, and applying. To it. Then the mind might actually become much more peaceful than before. It turns that dukkha into something very valuable and helpful. And many, many practitioners have said they got to the point where they wanted to stop meditating, stop their sit or stop their walking. They feel tired or distracted or bored. But they have just a moment where they catch that impulse coming up and they don't follow it, but they just stick with the meditation a little longer. And the whole thing dissolves, the whole mood, the reaction, maybe some aversion to the dukkha vaitana or whatever, just dissolves and they see it dissolving, see it ceasing in their mind. And they know, oh, it's an ichya dukkha anatta. And that kind of higher or deeper awareness of insight, wisdom comes up stronger and the mind becomes more radiant, more peaceful at that point. And maybe they can carry on sitting or walking longer. Or even if they stop, before they stop, the mind is actually freed from that attachment at that time. Or it could be in a sort of a more daily situation involved with things that bring up kilesa, people around you. 
rather than giving in to a reaction but you know, say you're with somebody that you would normally not like to be with or you're talking to them and you don't want to be talking to them or with them not want to be with them actually sticking with it using mindfulness facing up to that dukkha with mindfulness and then watching it dissolve over time because you're establishing mindfulness of dukkha and knowing dukkha as dukkha and not giving into the craving that it's generating but just watching and letting go and you can find out oh, you can actually stick with difficult situations difficult people whatever it is much better and that's insight and insight by its nature sticks in the mind it doesn't go anywhere it stays with your mind that's why it changes the mind over time because it's insight because it's wisdom it, defining point of insight is it sticks with you it's not just a passing thought an intellectual appreciation of dhamma or something it's an actual moment of mindfulness maybe see the samadhi panya mindfulness clear comprehension wise reflection all going on together and it changes the heart a little bit of avicca drops away a little bit of darkness drops away and a little bit of light comes into its place so of course in similar situations in the future one tends not to become so caught into dukkha because one's contemplated and let go of that defilement in that way before. So this is how the mind grows as insight deepens the mind becomes maturer, braver, more peaceful, more happy in itself and less phased and worried and caught up in the world and this is how all those words that the Buddha used come up dispassion, disenchantment fading away cessation, letting go, giving up abandoning it's abandoning that sort of grasping at dukkha and being pulled around by it and namely the candas, five candas the grasping of the candas this sense of detachment arising within the canvas and the mind becomes more refined because of that insight sense of the mind a little bit very subtly little by little stepping back letting go not so bothered not so disturbed by things but bright and energetic not dull or sleepy it's, it's awakened out of its intoxicated state or its sleepy state then you might even have a sense of hmm, if I keep doing this, keep reflecting in this way, letting go in this way this insight will get even more profound and you can get a sense of the subtleties of mind that come through letting go a sense of the, the refined uh, happiness of letting go even if it's not sustained and it's not the most profound letting go, one has a sense of oh, it could, could go that way if I keep doing this. So we have that similarly, like somebody who stepping over the stream, they have one foot on one side, one foot on the other side, but they can't go across yet. The mind, the mind can see 
anicca dukkha anatta are in phenomena, physical, mental phenomena, can let go a bit but not completely. Like stepping across the stream but can't go all the way across the stream. So the mind comes back and the path factors can't be sustained yet, not strong enough, mature enough. But we can see, oh, if we keep doing this, then there's a way that that might happen one day. They might all coalesce, merge together and then completely go across, completely detached, disenchanted, abandoned, letting go all those words completely rather than just temporarily, momentarily. course that will take time you have to practice keep practicing and if you give yourself the time then you can observe some of these changes taking place five years ten years fifteen years twenty years you can look back and say oh it does change things change the rough edges do smooth out and some of the intoxicated states of mind do fade away. There's a little bit more clarity, even if it's not sustained. But one has to give oneself the time to do that. So I'll leave these uh, words with you for your reflection tonight. <laughs> 